Welcome to the Real Estate Investing Exposure Podcast. On this podcast, you'll hear from Trevor Oldham, the founder of Podcasting You and host of the Real Estate Investing Exposure Podcast. Trevor has been running Podcasting You, a podcasting booking agency that helps real estate investors guest on podcasts. And after working with hundreds of real estate clients, he shares tips and tricks along with insights from his guests for how to start investing in real estate, grow your real estate business, and how to build credibility and become a go-to expert. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Real Estate Investing Exposure Podcast. And today on the show, we have Fernando Angelucci. He is the founder and president of Titan Wealth Group. He also leads the firm's finance and acquisition departments. Between himself and Stephen Ware, they founded Titan Wealth Group in 2015. And under his leadership, the firm's revenue has grown 100% year over year. Today, Titan Wealth Group operates nationwide, sourcing off-market investment properties for the Titan Wealth Group's acquisition, as well as serving a network of thousands of active real estate investors worldwide. Prior to founding Titan Wealth Group, Fernando worked for a Dow Chemical, a Fortune 50 company, rolling out a flagship product estimated to grow $1 billion in global revenues. With an engineering background, Fernando is able to approach real estate investing with a keen analytical mindset that allows Titan Wealth Group to identify opportunities and project accurate pictures of future performance. Fernando, super excited to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me, Trevor. And Fernando, for our audience out there that is hearing about yourself for the first time, I'd love for you to hop into your real estate background and you know why you decided to get into the business. Yeah, sure. So um, you know, it all started when I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad when I was 16 years old. And that's when I realized, you know, real estate is what I want to go into. So starting off at a young age, I didn't have a lot of money to start. So I started in the wholesale residential space. And then from there, started acquiring rental properties, fix and flip properties, started building uh, and acquiring multifamily. And then about four or five years ago, I started getting tired of the, uh, the tenants, the toilets and the trash. Mm -hmm. So from that point on, I decided to liquidate my entire portfolio and focus on self-storage. And uh, in the last three years alone, we've done a little over $50 million in self-storage acquisitions and development. Our primary investments are threefold. So on the, the left side of the spectrum, we buy existing mom and pop facilities um, all over the United States, typically in the 800000 to about $2.5 million range. We'll do a value add on those, put them together into portfolios with similar properties, and then either cash out refinance through the CMBS market or sell them off to regional players once we get above the 10 or $20 million mark on those portfolios. On the opposite side of the spectrum, we saw this need by the large institutional players and the REITs for class A product that is brand new. So we started acquiring land and building ground up developments typically in the 100 to 150,000 square foot range. These projects uh, are going to be ranging anywhere from $8 million to about $15 million with uh, resale values in the 18 to 22, $24 million range. And then right down the middle, we have a kind of a hybrid strategy, which is our conversion strategy. We go out and find uh, big box retail that has gone dormant and convert those into self-storage. And the reason we really like that strategy is it allows us to drop our total project cost by about a third. When we buy the envelope of the building, they're typically in good shape. And the pandemic has helped us out quite a bit with that part of our business because 
what traditionally we would, you know, see at 50 to a hundred dollars a square foot on the purchase price. Now we're getting under contract anywhere between 10 to $15 a square foot, just because retail has been, has been suffering quite a bit recently. I think that's, I think that's an excellent overview for our audience. And what's curious to me is you hear, you know, I talk to a lot of people on, let's say the multifamily space where they're buying, you know, apartment complexes and doing a value add from your perspective, what does a value add look like on the self storage industry? Absolutely. So when we're, the interesting thing about the self-storage industry is that it's very fragmented. So, you know, 6%, to maybe 9% of the, well, let me back up. So there's roughly about 72,000 facilities in the United States at this point. And when you look at the breakdown of who owns those facilities, about 18% or so is owned by the top six operators. These are the largest REITs out there. You know their names. You see them on every corner. Then the next 100 largest operators only own about 9% of the total stock of self-storage, which means that like 70 to 72% of the total inventory out there are owned by what we call mom and pop investors. They usually own one or two facilities at max. And when we go into those facilities, what we notice is that there's a lot of inefficiencies. Mm. So we'll come in and we'll bring the property into the 21st century. We'll get it online. We'll get a good social media presence, a good presence on Google. We'll then put a tech platform in place so to allow potential customers to rent uh, or reserve units right from their phone or from their, from their computer. And then by using a lot of the tech, we're able to actually decrease the labor costs when we go into those properties. So a value add for us, because self-storage is a commercial asset, it is valued based off its income generating potential or the cap rate. So our two largest goals are to increase revenue and to decrease expenses at all costs, while still providing a seamless experience for our customers. So on the rent side or the income side, We'll do things such as, you know, doing a market study to see where street rates should be. And what we'll notice is a lot of these mom and pop investors, they never do those. And when we come in, we can raise rents anywhere between 10 to 40% day one and still be cheaper than, than, than the market. So that increases our income quite a bit. A second piece on the income side is adding auxiliary profit centers. So not only charging for the rent on the unit, but selling locks, boxes, moving mm-hmm. supplies, um, maybe put up billboards or cell towers on, on the property, truck rentals. There's a whole slew of things that you can add that increase your, your revenue streams, uh, enforcing late fees, things like that. On the other side, lowering of the expenses, self-storage, there's not a lot of moving parts. Um, there's not a lot of utility costs. So your, your largest expenses on a self-storage facility are going to be your labor and your property taxes. So let's start mm-hmm. with the property tax piece. It, it starts mitigating that property tax starts right at or right before purchase. So as opposed to, say, buying a million-dollar facility and putting a million dollars on the purchase contract, what we'll do is because self-storage is also a business, we'll split that purchase agreement and say we'll put $650,000 allocated to the actual land and the improvements thereon. And then the other, let's say 350,000 or 300,000, we'll allocate to business or goodwill. So when that goes to the tax assessor, the assessor is only assessing the value of the facility based off of the land and the improvements, which in theory should drop our property taxes. 
In addition to that, we'll immediately hire a property tax attorney to go contest the property taxes and make sure that we're being properly um, allocated from the county tax perspective. So making sure that the basket of similar properties that they're using to comp ours out are truly what they should be, and then fighting our tax assessment to get that down as much as possible. On the labor side, like I said before, we try to put in technology as much as possible. So maybe put in a, a certain type of kiosk that allows tenants and potential customers to come in and rent just by using this kind of ATM style kiosk, making sure that our online presence is very strong and allowing for people to rent that way. And then having a call center to convert any incoming calls to, to customers. Um, also other things on the expense side, dropping insurance, uh, making sure that our insurer knows self-storage properly. One of the things that people do incorrectly in the storage space is they go to a regular, you know, the guy that did your car in your home, you end up calling for self-storage, but you got to realize, unlike other real estate assets, a lot of the liability is placed on the tenant in self-storage as opposed to on the owner. And the premium should reflect that because in theory, you're going to have less and less claims because of the things we put in place, like requiring renter's insurance, making sure that there's caps on the amount of value you can store in your unit, things of that nature. So those are all like the non-CapEx value add that we like to do. When it moves to the CapEx side, what we like to do is, uh, you know, if it doesn't already have it, put gates and security in place. So security cameras, security lights, keypad entry and exit uh, to allow people to come in and be tracked the entire time they're in there. Um, Room for expansion. So if we have additional land on the site, we'll go ahead and start putting up additional units or even modular units that can be moved around with a forklift in case you have maybe easements or setbacks that won't allow you to put permanent structures on the property. Um, and then going out and finding it either adjacent vacant land or maybe some land, you know, a couple blocks down the road that we can use as a satellite facility to expand our footprint in that market once we stabilize the existing asset. Yeah, I think that's a, an excellent overview for our audience listening. When they're, you know, go, like let's say they're potentially looking at the self-storage industry or just learning from yourself on the different value-add opportunities where, you know, it seems as though, you know, not only being able to increase through the new technologies, but then decreasing the expenses that you have. And, and then let's say that you're out there and you're looking to build a new self-storage facility. When you're looking in a market, is there a certain population that you look for? Is there a certain radius between self-storage facilities that you look for? Do you mind just walking our audience through sort of what that strategy looks like? Sure. And so let me give some caveats here. So I'll, I'll give some recommendations if it's going to be your first time buying a facility and then also uh, correlate it to what we do. So because we're a large self-storage operation firm, not only do we have internal acquisitions, but we also source properties for about 3,000 investors around the United States via like a wholesale program. So we'll get properties under contract and sell those contracts off to other investors. Now, that being said, it really depends on what your risk tolerance is and, mm. and what type of asset you want to deal with. So in general, for us, what we're looking at is for our internal acquisitions, things that we're going to hold ourselves is primary, secondary, and tertiary markets. So the secondary and tertiary markets are where we're going to buy existing facilities and do these portfolio value add strategies. The primary markets are what we're going to look for when doing these conversion projects or these ground up developments that are more product for the REITs or the larger institutional investors. So we will build, we'll take the development risk on ourselves and the lease up risk 
build and convert those and then sell them off once they're stabilized to these larger firms that are just looking for stabilized assets. With that being said, population, things like that, it really doesn't matter to me as long as I can see a pretty large equity spread. If you got a property that maybe it's in a tougher part of the country, low population, maybe negative job growth or negative population, that's not necessarily an issue for me. It just means that instead of me doing a long-term hold on that deal, we're going to do a shorter term kind of fix and flip, if you will. We'll come in, we'll raise the occupancy from 40 to 90 or 100%, um, and then we'll immediately sell it with a broker. So one of the things that we do, just the sheer economics, right? When, when we go direct to seller, we can usually get a two to 300 basis point uh, increase on the cap rate going in day one, uh, which allows us to keep our cash-on-cash uh, cash returns pretty high. And then once we go to exit, we'll go sell with one of those brokers or agents to really maximize the value we can get out of that. Now, with that being said, if this is going to be your first self-storage facility, what I typically recommend people do is buy something that is within two to four hours of your home, just because on your first facility, you're going to be learning on that facility. So don't try to look for a slam dunk value add that's got a ton of work that needs to be done. Look for something that's going to be a little bit easier. So I'll give you an example. My first facility was about two, two and a half hours from my home. Um, I bought it at 100% occupancy. The, um, I believe we walked in at a 7% cap rate. So not great. I mean, it was, it was great. You know, it was, it was all right. It was a, a solid first base hit type deal. But there wasn't a lot of things that could go wrong on that facility. So all we really had to do was increase the rents and then drop some of the expenses. It was a pretty easy facility to manage because there was no office, there was no fence, there was no gates, there was nothing that could really break. It was more of a, a learning asset. That being said, you want to find stuff that is maybe on a, a higher traffic road, has a lot of visibility, vehicle counts per day, populations roughly 40,000 plus people. Same thing with median income. You're going to want to be you know, in that 35 to 40,000 plus median income for the area. These are all going to be factors that will kind of safeguard you against any downturns. Once you start getting more experience, then you could do what I do, which is go into maybe some tougher markets because mm -hmm. you see the ability to raise equity substantially in a very short period of time, get in, get out, not have to really take any market risk and then reinvest those proceeds into maybe a longer term hold in a better market with, you know, lower margins. That's excellent for audience as well. And now that's something that's interesting to me, and you mentioned, you know, helped out a little bit during the pandemic is, you know, potentially buying abandoned uh, buildings. And I've heard of, you know, self-storage investors, or I know of one self-storage investor that had gone out and, and I think he developed, a, you know, a Kmart that had gone out of business and developed into a self-storage facility. And I'd love to just hear your experience on buying some of those buildings that are no longer a store and then being able to turn them into a self-storage facility. Yeah. So we really like, as I said before, because of the ability to drop our total project costs. So one of the things that have draw, has drawn me to storage is the cost to build is significantly cheaper than multifamily. I'm here in the Midwest based out of Chicago, where to build a multifamily property, you're easily going to be at the 250 to $300 a square foot range to build class a self storage facilities. I'm typically closer to the 90 to a hundred dollar a square foot range total project cost. And then if you go to do more class B class C style developments, you're going to be falling in the 40 to 55 bucks a foot. So because of that, 
when we go into these conversion projects, what we're typically looking for, you know, we're going to be thinking of our exit first and foremost, which is going to be to these larger REITs, to these more institutional players. So you have to really put yourself in their shoes and see what they want. So typically they want something that's got more square footage, everything updated because they don't want to deal with any maintenance issues. So they're looking for maybe, you know, at a minimum 60,000 net rentable square feet, all the way up to 100, 120,000 net rentable square feet. If your floor plan or your footprint on the conversion project does not support that much, as long as you have a high enough clear height, so maybe 22 feet to the rafters, then you can actually put a mezzanine level in there and double the square footage. So what we're looking for is properties that are in high visibility corridors. Typically, they're in mall complexes. They're surrounded by dense residential, all the demand drivers that we're looking for. And we want to make sure that the envelope itself is in pretty good condition. And if it's not, we need to budget to repair that in there. So for example, I'll look at a old Sears building and I'll look at the roof and the facade, the mechanicals, the electrical, the plumbing, make sure those are up to date, the fire suppression system. If not, I need to budget for those things. And then we're usually going to pay anywhere between, you know, on the low side, $8 a square foot to the high side would be probably closer to 15 to $20 a square foot, depending on the condition of the building. And once we acquire those, then, you know, we're spending anywhere between 35 to $55 a square foot doing the actual build out and conversion process. So that keeps our total project cost in the 55 to, you know, $65 a square foot range, as opposed to doing a ground up development where it would be falling in the 90 to $100 a square foot range. So that's typically what we're looking for. We like secondary and primary markets for the conversion opportunities, dense residential with the ability to exit to a larger player. So we do want to see some presence of a REIT or institutional partner in the area before we acquire those assets. And then as you've been investing in the self-storage space, are there any mistakes you've made or, or any challenges that you've experienced as an investor? Yeah. So in the beginning, I, one of the main issues I had was thinking that I had to be on site all the time. Mm. What you realize coming from the multifamily space into self-storage is there's much less management. There's much less headache. There's not a lot that can really go wrong on these facilities. So making sure that you're setting up the processes and procedures in place to allow you to scale. And then once you get those procedures in place, then it'll also allow you to maybe invest in other markets that are more advantageous as opposed to investing in your backyard. So for example, I'm in the Chicago market. We are a pretty high tax environment, uh, property taxes, sales tax, you know, the whole gambit. So my first facility was my learning facility. I built all those processes and procedures on that facility. And then from there, I was able to go out to more advantageous markets like the Southeast, the South, the Southwest, and start buying in areas where the tax climate is much more lenient, labor costs are cheaper, uh, much more pro-business municipalities. So that's what I would say in the beginning is when you're running your first facility, run it as if you are not allowed to visit the site, and that will help you build the processes and procedures to basically elevate and delegate yourself out of the role so that you can do what is the most important part of the job, which is sourcing and acquiring assets, not managing them. Yeah, I think that's an excellent overview for our audience. And as you're going out and you know finding these facilities 
When it comes to the terms of financing, are you raising capital? Is it all in-house? Do you mind just walking our audience through sort of how you finance the properties? Yeah, absolutely. So self-storage is fantastic when it comes to debt financing. Um, some of the lowest default rates over the last 40 years across any real estate asset on a bank's books. It also has some of the highest returns of any real estate asset over the last 30, 40 years. So because of that, that banks realize the safety that come with giving loans on these products and they want to make sure that their portfolio is balanced with less risk mm. assets. So what they want to do is to entice borrowers to come into the into their funnel is offer pretty great terms and leverage. So we can typically, if we go to a local bank to use as a bridge, um, you know, we're falling in the, four percent maybe four and a quarter percent rate we're getting anywhere between on the low end 80 percent or 75 percent leverage on the high end we can go up to 90 percent leverage through the sba which means that we only need to bring down 10 to 15 percent on any project um, if it's a smaller project maybe a couple million dollars and below we'll we'll just self-finance that we won't syndicate those deals if we're going to portfolio a lot of those deals together where maybe we have a total project cost of 10 to $20 million, then we start doing syndications. We'll go either 506B or 506C and then raise from sophisticated and accredited investors for those assets. Yeah, I think that's excellent. Walk our audience through those loan terms. And then as you get along and whether to do self-financing or to bring on outside investors, but Fernando, I think this interview has been great today, but I just wanted to ask you a couple quick questions before we end the show today. Do you happen to have a favorite real estate investing or business book that you'd recommend for our audience to check out? Yeah, there's actually a few, if you don't mind me giving you two or three. Yeah, so, that's perfect. Uh, on the the running of a business side, being an entrepreneur, I, I really love Traction by Gina Wickman. It's probably one of the most gifted books that I have. I, I give it to any new new business owner, even experienced business owner that maybe is more of a one-stop shop or one-man show as opposed to more of a, you know, entity or, or corporation. So that's a really great book on how to scale, how to delegate and how to put it processes and procedures to help grow your business. On the negotiation side, because real estate, doesn't matter what asset you're in, asset class you're in, you know, negotiation is going to be a huge part of that. I always recommend Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. It's an absolutely fantastic book. And then on the kind of more business personal side, I really recommend Principles by Ray Dalio. It shows you how to build a framework, not only around your business, but also around your personal life and how to basically create algorithms to help with decision-making so that you can learn and tweak as you go over time to become more successful and then learn from your failures and hopefully never repeat them again. Awesome. Those are excellent books for our audience to check out. And the last question of the day is where can our audience find you? Yeah, absolutely. So your audience can reach out via our website. You can go to titanwealthgroup.com or impactselfstorage.com. You can also shoot me an email. It's either info at titanwealthgroup.com or info at impactselfstorage.com. Those are probably the easiest ways. You can find us on social media. If you just uh, look at Impact Self Storage or Titan Wealth Group, we'll show up on all the major platforms. Awesome. I'll make sure to include that in the show notes of today's episode. And Fernando, I just want to say thanks again for coming on to the show today. Yeah, I appreciate the time, Trevor. Thank you. 
Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Real Estate Investing Exposure Podcast. For full show notes on today's episode, go to podcastingyou.com. That's podcastingyou.com. If you have feedback from today's episode, feel free to email us at trevor at podcastingyou.com. Thanks for listening.